Well, here we are at 200, 200 opuses of Triloquy. Do you feel out of breath? You feel like you need to catch your breath? I'm feeling a lot of things, actually. <laughs> and uh, most of all, of all the things I'm feeling is gratitude, especially for our friends over in California, Salestina. Salestina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be more at salestina.org. I'll speak to one of their upcoming programming programs here in a bit. When I think about what it says here, though, you know, uh, brought in the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. Mm-hmm. Man, wasn't that the vision from the very beginning? Just to yeah. take take this thing and to do something with it, shake it up, not necessarily offend, not necessarily <laughs> cause problems, but just broaden the scope. It's, you know, I think about um, pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd triloquy versus post Mm-hmm. Uh, triloquy. I think about you know my own healing, a uh, pre-Buddhist Garrett <laughs> triloquy. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know a, a change that a lot of people really, really noticed. When I just think about the the span of uh, you know what we've done in two hundred opuses, it just leaves me feeling not so much you know bullhorns and and applause, but just you know introspection and. Uh, I don't know, just memory. I'm, dare I say nostalgia in front of you? <laughs> well, you're going to get me started down a road if you do. Um, whereas I think you might have, um, once I, you know, I think I described you as uh, uh, more the statesman. And mm-hmm. you've used it a couple times, but you didn't like it at first. Yeah. That you've, you know, sort of leveled off a little bit. Whereas I feel in a lot of instances, uh, I've gotten more vocal than I would normally be. Yeah, and I and I think that just sort of, you know, ebb and flow is just what makes this show what it is. Right. When you know, I was I was thinking about you know, I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of uh, uh, memories in in this opus, you know, but th- there's one in particular that I felt like you know we just needed to go ahead and get out of the way just so that it's it's stated. Okay. Can, can you guess where I'm going? <laughs> I could, but just go ahead. Yeah. Young Jin Cho playing piano there. Of course, Debussy's Gollywog's Cakewalk. Okay, let's mm-hmm. let, let's talk about nothing more than the music for a second, just the aesthetic of what we hear. I definitely don't hear jazz. I hear um, a, a representation of it, maybe even a translation of it. I don't know if that's necessarily problematic for me, hmm. a, a, a French composer taking something and saying, oh, this is sort of what's going on in America right now. This I was is thinking more rag, like, like a yeah. rag, yeah. E- either way, that's you know something American and that's yeah. something something black. Okay, but when you put that with that title, Gollywog's Cakewalk, yeah. 
are we talking is it and, and again you, you're talking about statesmen considering the the conversation that we had <laughs> about was that even this season it must have been maybe yeah uh, it was when uh when chuck was, when was here chuck gomez yeah, was shout out to chuck um because then after we finished recording the podcast we sat and sparred for another 45 minutes probably afterward basically my my idea my point what was getting me upset was that where do we draw the line when it comes to these composers? If he had said the ninja dance, would that be enough to put him in the closet? And if so, why is Gollywog not on that same level considering what it is and what the uh, imagery is? Okay, now, is that uh, uh, an overreaction? Is it should we just be taking this one piece and doing something with it? Should we be considering Debussy just a man of his time? You know, it's it's unfair of us to apply contemporary values and, sure. and morals to his life. Where where, where are we now? Yeah, I, well, I, Let, let's put this conversation that, to bed forever. No, I think that it's, <laughs> I think that it's a, on a case by case basis. Still, what I was grappling with was because you you were laying it out in front of me as if you listen to anything in here, then you're okay with that. <laughs> and so you're okay with hanging out with a guy who uses the word gollywog and i'm over here going upset. yeah no you weren't upset it was just that there was it was the kobayashi maru situation there sure. was no there was no way for me to get out of that without being wrong on some level and I think this is where we just have to go when it comes to new music and living composers of all of the of right. all the stuff out there why does it have to have a place? I think that is is just my thinking when it comes to so sure. so many things. Um, but you know, if that that, that recording is not old, that it is still being performed, it's still being um, recorded, it's still being platformed. It's just a part of what we got to live through in, um, in this thing, right? I will just not say nothing about it. I, I will. <laughs> I will tell you that I have not had that come across my playlist in about four years. Hmm. Mm. And not not even the not even the the suite that it comes from. Triloquy started about four years ago. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm you lining you know, things up. I'm 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 only saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, thank you everyone. Two hundred opuses of the Triloquy podcast. We're going to be getting into uh, a lot of memories, a lot of uh, really great announcements uh, for the future. But you know, at the end of it all, I I'm really. Uh, pulling out from this experience so far, the art of dialogue. It's one thing to research and to uh, put things together and polish it all up, but we have just been going for it. There are no scripts over here. Right, <laughs> right. We're, we're just going for it. And goodness gracious, to consider where we have gone as individuals and the impact that our dialogues have had, man, if we could just get Arts institutions just sitting down at a table, having lunch, having a few drinks, smoking a joint, whatever your sort of off work thing is, we we could we could change the world with dialogue. That was the idea in the beginning of Opus One was to have this conversation over a drink, mm -hmm. you know, in 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 a laid back atmosphere to get the real conversation. And I don't, I can't think of many podcasts at that time that weren't doing some editing of the interviews yep. you know but um triloquy might have cut out a portion for time but never for content oh yeah <laughs> never you know never 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 that and then just the the array of people <laughs> right <laughs> who have been on the show folks from all around the country around the world all walks of life wow wow uh wayne shorter um most recently terrence blanchard rachel barton pine jennifer higdon 
I mean, and I'm also thinking about David Norville, you know, who yeah. gave us so much just, you know, and at such an early stage of the podcast, I'm uh, uh, thinking about Baba Tunde, you know, as, mm -hmm. as huge as he's getting. And, you know, I, I, of course I could list, uh, you know, shout out to Katie and Delaney for goodness sake, you yeah. know, like just, just all of these, all of these folks. Wow. Do you, is there one that sticks out for you? I know that, I know that that's like telling you to pick your favorite kid or whatever, just well, I'm, I, I can solidly say Wayne Shorter for me is mm. the one, um, you know, and aside from uh, Wayne Shorter being just someone famous who uh, I can I can name drop for the record. One of my favorite Wayne Shorter moments is when he talks about when people uh, say that he's name dropping. He says, no, actually, I'm name lifting. OK, ah, okay. so I'm so I'm going to name lift Wayne Shorter right now. Yeah. Not only did he just have an impact on uh, my understanding of jazz and uh the the richness of his history because i was catching up reading about wayne shorter before, mm -hmm, right, before the, i was right. i was completely late to the party um but you know the 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 role he had in my uh entry into my buddhist practice right i mean just a, a, an individual who had such a profound impact on my life to have the audio record of a sharing dialogue yeah it's it's absolutely priceless yeah Absolutely priceless. I'd have to go back to Opus 12 from my, I'm, I don't know if I won't even want to say it's my favorite. It's the Opus 12 when I interviewed Devon oh, Gray. Yeah. That is when I learned the real parameters <laughs> of my privilege, mm -hmm. of the work that needed to be done. And it was a little frightening. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a, not, I'm, I'm not going to say frightening. Um, I was embarrassed, I guess. A little bit to have the discoveries but one of the things that devon says in the interview is he does not code switch in any shape yeah way shape or form even around children you're you know you're gonna get this <laughs> he said he said you're gonna get the same dude <laughs> and there was there was hits that he landed that i didn't realize landed you know until like uh, six or eight hours after the podcast. Ain't that right? something when that happens? You know, yeah. it's like, oh. <laughs> You'd be ready to lay down to bed. You're like, wait a minute. And you're right, hold it. And I just walk right straight through it. But um, I think that uh, Devon's one of my favorite people. Yeah. And it's always nice whenever he comes back through town and gets to spend some time hanging out with him. And if you, uh, I was very, there I was very appreciative to have the opportunity to go back and qualify some of the questions you know and, mm -hmm. and say what i really meant was or this that and the other we haven't done that since so and i think that that's um i think that's a feather in the cap yeah yeah i mean normala come on opus I 25 mean, that's a, a, a classic think about that audio think about that dialogue the musical performances anyway we could we could <laughs> list here forever right. and, and never but shout out to all of y'all for continuing uh to support this show it's really been an incredible ride i'm gonna get us out this intro i found a a nice uh it, it was something my uh my sort of daily thing i have a couple of daily books over there that i read in the mornings uh, after I chant. And one of the uh, guidances or, or things for today was on dialogue. So I thought I would bring it in. It says, it is only within the open space created by dialogue, whether conducted with our neighbors, with history, with nature, or the cosmos, that human wholeness can be sustained. The closed silence of an isolated space can only become the site of spiritual suicide. Mm. We are not born human in any but a biological sense. We can only learn to know ourselves and others and thus be trained in the ways of being human. 
We do this by immersion in the ocean of language and dialogue fed by the springs of cultural tradition. I really loved that. But when I got to the end of that, the springs of cultural tradition, I'm I'm thinking to myself, okay, but but that that's what we're trying to break down here. <laughs> that's what we try to get rid of. But think about as as you used to teach your uh, uh, students in, in one of the classes you talked about, you know, were these composers not breaking tradition? Yeah. Were these composers not cussing everybody out and uh, romping around and writing major thirds when that was so dissonant and so demonic people saying know. who is this handle guy and why are we still playing his stuff and why is he investing in the slate anyway that's no, that was after he died <laughs> anyway let's jump into this 200th opus of triloquy thank you everyone here we go Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Shout out to all of y'all. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you to uh, all the new listeners. If this is your first or second time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and expands that to include far more than we were originally taught that phrase to mean, all toward the decolonization of classical music. You can check out past opuses. You can learn a little bit more about the show. And you can contribute on our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-I.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Salestina presenting Sounds Delicious, The Lord of the Rings on May 27th. Remember when different kinds of people from all around Middle Earth bravely came together to defeat a common foe? Yeah, us either. <laughs> but hey, that's what fantasy is for. Enjoy a delicious themed meal prepared by Chef Rashida Holmes and a concert inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien's epic story. Come in costume if you wish. That's going down at a private residence over on May 27th. You hmm. can uh, get your tickets and learn more at salestina.org. Um, we got uh, some some really nice uh, inspirational music in different ways coming in the second movement. Mine a little bit hip hop, yours a little bit. Well, what, what would you? I know we're breaking down genre. What is the what is the spirit of the tune that you're bringing in? Maybe 80, if not the genre, just the you know. it's it is the spirit of the '80s. Okay. Yep. So some '80s Brit pop. So music from the '80s and music by an artist born in the '80s. That's the maybe that could be the <laughs> connection there. Um, I'm very honored to uh, feature today in the third movement my conversation with Bethany Reed, just uh, an, an incredible human being living in the so-called land of Canada. We'll, we talk about so-called classical music. Bethany Reed said, "Canada who." <laughs> Never heard of her. Anyway, that's coming up in the uh, third movement. Uh, uh, Scott's going to talk to y'all a little bit in the finale, but for now, we will jump into movement one. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to get us started uh, this week in this first movement with a sharp um, because I have to give it up to 
Carlos Simon. So we've for several months now, we've been talking about the world premiere of Breath by the Minnesota Orchestra, the Minnesota Orchestra's response to the murder of George Floyd. Um, the composer, uh, nor the libretto, shout out to Mark Babuti Joseph, we're from Minnesota, we're here when it all went down. There's so many artists here on the ground that could have all of that, all of all of those dialogues. Well, it, you know, it all culminated. Um, I let the pre-concert dialogues uh, last week for each of the three performances. I have to say people were there uh, to feel. I, I started each of the, the pre-concert talks by inviting people to just say words out loud that come to mind when they think about May uh, 2020. I wonder mm-hmm. if, if you can just, you know, rewind in your mind thinking about, you know, those first nights of the uprisings. We up there going to work, you know, and it's yeah, all kind of shit ten, going yeah, on. 10 minutes away from you know, the front lines. But p- p- paint, paint the picture of, of your memory. Going into work on the days that, you know, they were anticipating uh, an escalation, mm-hmm. seeing all of my old haunts boarded up. I had to go by the east side precinct and that had barriers and fencing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it, it felt very cold and very foreign. Yeah. And, and, and that came off at work. You know, I, I, I was not very effectual the, in, in those days. Um, and to know that I would be heading home midnight going through neighborhoods full of people who are taking advantage of a vacuum in mm-hmm. in the police presence it was chilling yeah chilling and um very uh, just uh, very uncomfortably awkward to to be in my own neighborhood mm-hmm. the word cold is what comes to mind for me so yeah. i remember getting off work from the overnight so it's you know the sun is just coming up Folks have gone wherever they've gone, and I'm just sort of driving around the streets. I remember I, uh, on the first night, I went up and down university just seeing all of the building, all the windows shattered and all of the buildings, everything a wreck, some stuff burnt down. You know, it's right. it was all of the giant concrete boulders in front of all of the entrances to all of the park. Like, yeah, just a cold place. Ooh, but... You know, music was uh, the the way that we remembered that uh, last week at the Minnesota Orchestra. One of the other things that uh, I really made a point to get to in the pre-concert discussions that I, you know, just want to say out loud here: we do a lot of memorializing George Floyd and remembering the time and remembering its impact on us and the nation and the world, for better or for worse. We don't spend as much time thinking about the human being named George Floyd who called for his mother in his last breaths, you know, Mm. who went to a a corner store not expecting to be killed, to be executed in public that way. Mm. I think um, we have a responsibility, you know, as as much as Minnesotans, uh, twin people here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, uh, really claim the the harshness of that time considering our proximity, which I think we have – um, a right to to claim over mm. someone who was not here. I think we also have a responsibility to just humanize the man who was killed and not forget to think about him as a father, as a as a son, as a as a friend, what as a you, human. Uh, what do you think about the immediacy of of the media? Uh, I remember being in graduate school and uh, talking about how quickly we were getting information from the front lines of whatever wars we were involved in, right? Mm-hmm. 
And now here in 2023, a 17-year-old young woman has everything she needs right here in the palm of her hand to capture this. Um, for a moment, I was like, okay, social media is a good thing. <laughs> what do you think about that, the, the impact there? I'll tell you something that I've been thinking about. I learned recently, I'll have to maybe fact check it, but I, I heard from a verifiable uh, podcast that I was listening to that uh, the person who videotaped Eric Garner's murder mm -hmm. uh, in, in New York is in jail. They, yeah. they, they found something. So that is something that you've heard. Yeah. So I think youth protected her. I mm. think the fact that she was a young woman, and let's just say it, not a young black boy even, but a young woman who they can't pin stuff on as they can a, a grown man or who, whatever the case was for Eric Garner can't go back in her uh, you right. know, history to try to get her. And, you know, because of her, we, we all saw this. I do remember though, when it, first went down, I was one of the people on social media saying, I'm not looking at that. I'm not looking right. at another person lynched. Y'all shouldn't be spreading that yeah. murder porn. I, a, a lot of me still feels that we wouldn't be having the conversations that we are having. We wouldn't be getting the orchestral premieres we're getting if it weren't for the spreading of that video. Sure. I agree. Um, but then I, what is it? No, even? I mean, I, wa I watched what they would show on the newsreels, right. and which was, you know, maybe 10 seconds worth. I, I, I'm with you. I don't need to see it. But I, what I was going to say, but what does that even mean? Uh, a black man was killed by the police. So now we got a room full of people all dressed up who go get to go hear an orchestra, con uh, you know, uh, an orchestra concert about mm. it. There's mm. just an innate just ugliness about it that's hard to resolve. And I think the beauty of of Carlos Simon's uh, music and uh, and Bamuti's spoken word gave room for a lot of that, and just you know let the hurt be hurt, let what's visceral be visceral, but very uh, uh um how can I say not uh, a very accessible score, you know, just very beautiful, and it sounds like black music at the same time. Sure. Not not to compare composers, I felt like I was watching a Spike Lee joint sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it just had that spirit about it. So I don't know, it's it's a lot. Looking at his artist statement, I was impressed. Some of it really pulled me in immediately. He talks about how the piece is reaching all the way back through all this heritage, through yeah. all this history, uh, and exploring the timeline as it reaches today, this post-pandemic America. And he says, who would we be if we use COVID-19 as an opportunity to focus on both public health and public healing? Mm. Our entire country has endured a trauma. How do we publicly heal? And I, I, I think it's great that he goes in with that question, uh, you know, a thesis that he's trying to find, you know, prove or something like that, rather than the, I'm, this is my. This is what my. I'm. I'm going to do to soothe or to cover over. We talk about poison into medicine in my Buddhist practice. We really turned poison into poison with COVID. Just all, we we dropped the ball there. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you you just read that. I'm thinking about that. COVID could have been quarantine. Could have been the time where we were really connecting as human beings on an emotional level, even if we couldn't physically. Mm -hmm. There were people who I was zoom. Not to go on a tangent. There were people I was zooming with who I haven't seen or talked to in, in 15, 20 years. You know, me saying twenty years, uh, and and that time just allowed for that. It could have it could have been a lot of healing. We but we didn't quite get that. Mm. Not certainly not in May of twenty twenty. No.
there was a uh, one of the really powerful moments. I'll, you know, shout out to the Minnesota Orchestra. They published the entire libretti in the program. There was one uh, portion of it that when it was pre- performed, it was so visceral, and I saved it here. I'm going to read it. Um, it says, in 1619, Jamestown enshrined a color-based American cast. It took 244 years before Black people were enshrined a voting place in the franchise. 244 years from 1868 will be the second decade of the next century. By the time there is a part parody of Black enslavement and Black political agency, no one in this room will be alive. And that is the breadth of the task. Mm. That really touched me deep because it made me think about just determination all across the board, all of the little things we do to get, uh, and I'm, as by we, I mean just as a society, to get Black composers performed or to create El Sistema style programs right. to, you know, be, these are drops in the bucket at the end of the day, but those drops in the bucket are, are still so important. It's, it's what so many of us have dedicated so much time and, and space and sacrifice to. You know, how, how can you not just keep going, even though we, we won't even see what really needs to come to fruition, come right. to fruition? Right. Um, you said that people came to feel. What was it like to be on stage with those other artists and, and how did the crowd react? Well, I'm. I've Did had, you bring the spice? Did I, you bring the fire? I've had the great fortune of uh, knowing Carlos Ambamuti for a while, and you know, over the course of over a year, you know, myself and several other people uh, from the Twin Cities were sort of uh, community liaisons for the organization. So we would be in dialogue. So you know, by the time this was happening, I'm not there to sabotage anyone. I'm not there to make anyone hurt you know we th- this isn't about me this isn't even about the opportunity i think to and and maybe there's some people who would disagree with me here it's not about the opportunity to uh claim ownership of an experience as much as it is a time to honor a man you know honor the human being george floyd and to honor it in the way that we honor it you know as classical music professionals yeah, I think there were a lot of missteps along the way, but I wasn't even, you know, coming with the energy to to be like that. I wanted to have a real dialogue. I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, really showcase the the real feelings, you know, for this predominantly white audience that three black men can have about this situation. But you know, do so in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind, just to make sure that we're all benefiting from this in some way. Not to say that we were in there softballing it by any means. Right. You know, well, one thing that I did say, you know, at the end of, I think the, the final one we did three was going to see that music, going to see that performance is not the work. You know, you're here to celebrate a composer, you're here to celebrate a life, but the work happens when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're in your places of worship, you, you know, that that's when that is done. So it wasn't just all woo-woo, and they right. don't, no, don't, no, no. don't get me wrong. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> if they, I was just curious if they were picking up what you were putting down, if I, they I, were receptive. I think so. It, it, great dialogue between me and Carlos and Pamuti. Anyway, shout out to um, everybody at the Minnesota Orchestra. Shout out to Jonathan Rush. You know, they got a, a black conductor in to even do it. So they, yeah. <laughs> Minnesota Orchestra did just about everything they can. TPT, the local uh, public television right. station, aired it. Right. NPR aired it. Right. It was it was an event. Yeah. It, it definitely was a thing, and it's 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 fun to see. Uh, d- despite the horrific reason, it's it's fun to see a thing happening around uh, classical music and black books being at the center of that. 
Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to uh, transition to uh, our next accidental uh, with a short excerpt from uh, the work Breath as performed by the Minnesota Orchestra. task. In 1619, Jamestown enshrined a color-based American caste. It took 244 years before Black people were enshrined a voting place in the franchise, 1868. The 14th Amendment was ratified. Jamestown to citizenship. 244 years in between. 244 years from 1868 will be the second decade of the next century. By the time there is a parody of black enslavement and black political agency, no one in this room will be alive. And that is the breadth of the task. Mm, mm, mm. Isn't that powerful? Who's the voice? That's Mark Bamuti Joseph, who wrote the uh, libretti for mm. the piece alongside uh, Carlos Simon as the music Piercing composer. delivery. Whew, goodness gracious. Amen. Hallelujah. Go on with your accidental. What you got? <laughs> well, it's interesting that, you know, we highlighted the COVID healing and public, private and public healing. And I'm reading from faroutmagazine.co.uk. I am going to give this a sharp. You thought I'd forgot, didn't you? <laughs> it's been a co- we haven't been in person for a couple of weeks. So uh, over here on our side of the pond, uh, good old Heather McDonald was doing her thing. <laughs> one of the one of the many characters about, of, um, of the Triloquy podcast the, over the years. <laughs> I, I didn't even get through the whole headline. Goodness you know, gracious! It was something about and she wanted to smoke with Gary McQueen. You remember? You remember? I, mean, I wasn't. Anyway, go on. Shout out to Heather McDonald. Well, no, <laughs> something about, you know, the classics are being destroyed, blah, 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 blah. Right. Okay, so let's look at over here, over in the UK, uh, why is classical music making a comeback? Now, I'll give you the, the, the overall thrust of the article here first. Uh, the second, third line of the article, Aaron Starkey says, um, COVID-19 pandemic was a reset for society with those of us not in political power collectively using the time off to reevaluate our place in the world and what we wanted from life. Mm. It also led to many exploring new realms of interest, ones that had been previously dismissed without a great deal of thought. One such thing was classical music. Mm. So anyway, they talk about listenership is up and the majority of those listeners tend to be 35 and younger. You know, they lean into that uh, soothing, right. allows you to focus, that that sort of vibe. Right. But they also tie it in with the cutting edge artists of today that are doing crossover and uh, collaborations yeah. with orchestras or chamber ensembles and such. Um, one of the ones that they bring up a lot is Radiohead. Well, before we get 
into Radiohead, let me ask this. What? Over COVID, a lot of uh, hobbies popped out. A lot of a lot of podcasters came and went during COVID. Well, you know, sure. <laughs> a lot of people were b- baking bread who aren't, you know, who haven't fed. You have to feed your yeast or you know feed the dough or something. Who haven't done that in a while? You know. My, oh my, no, we're back outside. That, that's what I'm saying. So, <laughs> is what well, yeah. is classical music? Was classical music that for some people? I, I wonder what the numbers will look like two years from now when we're comparing 2025 to this up in yeah. listenership in 2020. I do kind of, I do agree to an extent with what the article lays out that it's just people having more time mm-hmm. to go deeper into something that they might've only had a passing fancy with before. Yeah. Or the algorithm takes them from one artist into some other project that they've done. And I guess there is not the consideration on some people's part, especially the institutions, that a person just you know now in the 21st century getting into classical music is probably going to take them a little bit of time to get as curious to get into a lot of the problematic aspects of it, or maybe even the broader sort of cultural implication of this idea of classical music only being this one thing from this one part of the world. It, it seems like there has to be time considered and given for people to develop in that way. If, if I get in, let's, what's something that I know nothing about, you know, fixing a car, there's probably names for <laughs> certain wrenches or something yep. that's problematic today, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> more in plumbing. <laughs> or, oh, <laughs> anyway, you get my point. I do. You know, so I think when we talk about classical, so-called classical music listenership being up, we got to, you know, throw those ingredients into the mix and, and really consider the fact that these folks haven't had the opportunity to learn who Handel really was or to learn what, you know, the magic flute is really about and right. those sorts of but things. But here's the thing, though. They're not talking about any of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're talking about the new stuff, the new okay. artists who are collaborating. Okay. Right. And then when they start saying it, they, they, they point out, you could, you know, this could happen in the United States too with, you know, oh, off the top of my head, who? Steve Reich is the first <laughs> one to come to mind. <laughs> like, okay, I, so, like I said before we cut on the mics, that man went all the way to Africa to be racist. I mean, come on. Well, I'm, not, I'm not talking bad. Y'all read the book. Y'all. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, here not we just talked about Carlos Simon, you know, yep. a fantastic living composer. There's loads of them. And the first one out, out the mouth is, oh, yeah, how about Steve Reich? Ooh, you yeah. know, so the, I'm <laughs> the saying- The breadth of the task. Basically, what I'm saying is here in the States, we've got a little bit of work to do as far as what they're doing in the UK, because, you know, all those cuts happened at the BBC. Mm-hmm. All of the organizations that they're talking about operate outside of that funding structure. Exactly, exactly. So, and what's happening over here? Well, according to some, whiteness is the anti-whiteness is killing the culture, evidently. <laughs> so, so what does uh, that say about the culture? Period. You I, know, what is that? what <laughs> I am saying is that over in the UK, they seem to be having some success with taking a modern orchestra mm-hmm. and having it take all those sounds that you're used to from the concert stage and records and radio. Yep, and they're putting DJs with them or rock bands. Or uh, some spoken word up in front. Conscience, the MC comes to mind. Why yeah. don't Why don't we get? Let's uh, hear more of that. 
I mean, even, even this work breath came with spoken word and they yeah. even projected it on the walls, you know, so it just creates more of a, uh, uh, an involved experience, a more engaging experience than just sitting there still and, you yeah. know, having the music happen at you. I, I, I think it's good. I'm going to, I'm actually going to talk a little bit in the second movement about, you know, hip hop into orchestral spaces, but I'm sure, you know, um, I'm sorry that I always forget his name. Uh, the artist that you just went down to Omaha to see <laughs> Jason, Isbell. Jason Isbell yep. and the Omaha symphony orchestra. Can you, what, what an event. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure been. you would, <laughs> I'm sure you would be down there. That would have been something else. Wow. <laughs> and it can be, you know, but it seems like it's, you know, again, I'm going to make the point for hip hop in, in a minute, but it just seems overall, it's something that across so-called genre orchestras, you know, could benefit from, from, uh, from tapping into. Mm. They wrap up here with uh, a familiar name, though. Um, one of the things that they referenced was the release Floating Points from the London Philharmonic, uh, the electronic artist. Pharaoh Sanders. Floating Points and soprano saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders. <laughs> floating Points is the name of the album. Oh, I see. Uh, I'm, uh, the, the name of the DJ. Promises is the name of the album. Yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, we visited that. Back when, uh, you know, we had a we had a loss in the, in the death family. in the family. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was when radar passed. But uh, but they also talk a little bit about what, why is Radiohead as as we're wrapping this up. Why is Radiohead a a point of conversation in in a in this article? He's done some composing for other media, mm. but also in line with kind of what the article was laying out during the pandemic, people had time to do some deep dives. You know, he, he talks about like um, it, it's off-putting trying to find out uh, information about a composer. Mm. Whereas when you are got a lot of leisure time, you're looking for something to kill the, kill the hours, mm -hmm. then you might go and do a deeper dive into something that you had a passing interest with before. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that, that crossover, you know, to, to not to even mention or, you know, considering the growth of an organization and, you know, diversifying audiences and that sort of thing, I think it can introduce... Um, you know, some of these pop artists classics or some of what happened yesteryear to the new audience in a new way. There are so many tunes <laughs> that I learned for the first time because of Orchid. You know, I, I basically learned who the Beatles were because I played with the Detroit Symphony and they played a lot of Beatles, you know. <laughs> Aerosmith um, too. A Aerosmith, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, Radiohead is uh, an ensemble that wasn't on my radar until I heard a a jazz sort of uh, a realization of, of one of their tunes, a tune called uh, Reckoner. You're, you know Reckoner Very as familiar. it existed. I, I can't really, and, you know, I need to increase my music education. I can't really sing the original for you or tell you how it goes. But I know this Robert Glasper version. I learned this for the first time uh, down at WUOT. One of the jazz hosts put this on, and it instantly caught my attention. So we'll transition to the second movement with Robert Glasper's cover of Reckoner.
it was uh I, I still remember it was i was living in knoxville so i was working at the radio station at the uh, at the time but it was evening i was off work driving somewhere clicked on the radio station just to check in man it's one of those cool fall days down south you know when it's when it's not cool to about thanksgiving you know Jeez. and the and the leaves are starting to turn and i still had the top down on my car man what a smooth beautifully melancholic soundtrack i had you know going going along that day man what what a moment they talk about drive driveway moments mm-hmm. you know or just those radio moments that you never forget for me that's one i will always remember that track and now yeah. you get snow on halloween <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get snow on this halloween i was out there oh right chat. november 2nd yeah <laughs> yeah you're right but we're here in the uh second movement uh where scott and i are going to share a tune that we've been spending some time with speaking of you know moving to minnesota you have to admit, <laughs> shout out to Minnesota. You know, Nina Simone didn't say Minnesota goddamn, but when I say sometimes it can be hard to meet people here. Yes. <laughs> so lately I've, I've known a lot of people to move to Minnesota. So I'm, I'm putting, taking people under my wing and really, you know, giving them the warm welcome that so many uh, people don't get here in Minnesota. You know, no shade to Minnesota. Anyway, all of that to say this past Saturday, me and some folks were um, hanging out, you know, Adam and crew, shout out to T who's been on Triloquy, um, just sitting around watching music videos and just reminiscing about being, you know, a hip hop fan in the South, you know, just that, that aesthetic. Mm-hmm. We're getting into that conversation. And of course, eventually we get to Megan the Stallion, who's from Texas, and we stumble upon her tiny desk, which I think is one of the best tiny desk performances out That's there. A statement. It's an, an incredible display of how hip hop can exist in other mediums than just the purely electronic, you know, sort of beats sort of thing. You can have a Mm -hmm. live band, a live ensemble and really do it. So for this Tiny Desk performance, uh, Megan Thee Stallion performed with a band called uh, Phony People. And uh, they they hadn't known each other. They hadn't met, but the band put together arrangements of her songs and uh, it worked out really well. So we sat around and watched it. And uh, the final song that she does on this tiny desk, <laughs> I had a spiritual experience. It, it really inspired me. I'll, I'll let you take the time. If you look over on my altar, there's a, a, a card written under the Go Hunzen, a handwritten note. What, is, what does the handwritten note say up on the top of the altar? Money good. Money good, period. That's that song <laughs> just reminded me of the power of confidence and speaking things into existence and how this can happen uh, on an even broader scale. If we take this hip hop music, figure out a way to really make it work for live music ensembles and spread the spiritual message. This song, Money Good, had me in a good feeling all weekend. And I want to share a little bit of it here. Money good, throw up where I'm from, let them know I'm still hood. Ride with some hitters and they wish a bitch would. I don't wanna argue about it, baby, yeah, I'm good. I ain't gotta worry about shit, money good. Ride with some hitters and they wish a bitch would. Before I post a pic, should I flex? Yeah, I should. I don't wanna argue about it, baby, yeah, I'm good. I ain't gotta worry about whole lame pig riding ass bitch. Never let a sack chase a hang in my click. Fuck getting clout, bitch, I'm trying to get rich. Better hide your wallet when I fall in the mix. Yeah, I can't deny I'm a star. You can tell by my walk. I ain't even gotta fuck him, he just love how I talk. I'm embracing the fake, I'm accepting the hate. If I wasn't number one, they wouldn't come for my place. Money good. All right, so listen to me, Scott. You've been a, you've been a DJ. 
You've mm-hmm. hosted many a party with many a young people. So imagine the energy of, you know, a thousand young black people. They're dressed to the nines because they feel like that's what they have to do when they go to the concert hall. That's fine. All of that's great. You got an orchestra on stage that has that tune fully realized with the marimbas on that beat. You know, you mm. got the percussion and the timpani doing. I'm sure there's a beautiful uh, flute and clarinet counter melody going off somewhere. That would be a thing. That would be a moment. We aren't talking about trying to sell tickets. We aren't trying to talk about an engaged audience, program notes, you know, what? Uh, none of that. We are in there having a good time. When I listen to that Tiny Desk performance, it just makes that vision just so clear for me. Because if that, I think, four-member four, uh, ensemble can take a pure rap song and just create that arrangement of it with a bass guitar in there. And, sure. Oh, my gosh. Sure. Our orchestras can definitely do that. I think the problem is that there is an innate fear. I'm just going to say fear of anything that sounds aesthetically like hip hop. Let's take Megan the Stallion's lyrics all the way out, right. you know, and just have that instrumental. If you played something like that, you probably would get an email or two. I'm not trying to cause uh pass judgment. I imagine probably <laughs> you would probably get an email or two. Opus 200 of Triloquy. How do we get over that hump? How do we get over the hump of a steady beat? in some orchestral tune being okay. There is some stuff, Henrik Schwartz, that makes it out there every now and again, but it seems like the specific aesthetic of hip hop is just a challenge for for the audiences. Yeah. And I think that it goes back to something that we've talked about frequently, which is we are embedded in convention. Mm. And just like we were saying at the opening of this opus, talking about how Composers like uh, Mozart and Beethoven and all the classical era people, they were trying to say, quit playing Handel, he's gone. Yeah. Even back then. Okay, mm. so. <laughs> what? To this day. <laughs> so now you're going to make my whole train of thought derail. I had a full head of steam going too. <laughs> no, so basically what I'm saying is that uh, – the first one out there to do the different, to try to, they're going to get shouted down, mm-hmm. right? And then somebody else has to come up and try it. And then somebody else until finally people are like, hey, you know, I didn't like what that other guy was doing, but this is pretty good. So basically, we have to have more people stepping out, stepping forward. <sighs> Shout out to the NPR tiny desks. I mean, I can I can sit here and boohoo about how moving the Sesame Street one was <laughs> to me. <laughs> the Blue Man Group Tiny Desk mm. is really incredible, actually very creative. I mean, of course, Anderson Pack. I think that's still the oh, most yeah. viewed ti- oh, tiny yeah. desk. But I'm not sleeping on Megan The Stallion. This gives me an image of what hip hop orchestral mashups can be on a micro level, and I think it's beautiful. A little bit more money, good here.
I know some too, Megan. <laughs> anyway, go on. What you got about the second movement? <laughs> and here I was about to say, yeah, I could hear some strings in there, and then that goes out the window. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. Yeah. So it's it's interesting the algorithm, the way the algorithm listens and gets an idea of what's happening in my phone and my computer. But I went down uh, my uh, a rabbit hole of my era, the eighties, the the Brit pop, the uh, the uh, second British invasion, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, was thick as I was out working on my projects in the yard. And one track came around a couple on a couple different mixes, and I thought it's amazing how when this came out in nineteen eighty four in nineteen eighty five. I didn't like it at all. Mm. I couldn't identify with it. I had no idea why I should care or why this guy was dancing this way in the video. So it's a band called Simple Minds. They're a a, a Scottish pop, I guess you would say alternative back in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Um, Had a track that was on the, uh, the Breakfast Club soundtrack for the film. And the film is all about all these different kinds of kids from different cliques get put into detention. Yep. And, you know, some of them end up dating and they end up changing and having realizations. And so Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds is now a track that I get, that I understand, and that I actually like. So talk about that as a classic. You know, we can we can talk about an orchestral arrangement of this tune, but as it exists, it's a classic, right? It's something that belongs in the Rolodex of in major points in music over the years. Sure, and I think that that's just one of the examples of uh, being at the right place at the right time. That was a confluence, mid-1980s. That was a, uh, MTV was in its infancy, um, the, uh, like I said, the second British invasion, it was this, uh, this something different to listen to than the, the, what is now known as the classic rock, you know, mm-hmm. just the, 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 the quartet bar band, you know, uh, on a arena tour, mm-hmm. something like that. You had fashion, hair, dance styles. Um, that was me. You said it was the mood. It was the moment. In, the, in 1985. <laughs> It was 
the vibe yeah. for 85. Well, it's definitely a song I know. And if it's something that's come across my ears, I tend to think it must be a classic. It must have been big enough to make it to me. You right. know? So yeah, wow, great pick, great pick. All right, well, we're going to uh, get into the third movement where this week's uh, guest is Bellany, Bethany Reed. So I uh, met Bethany over the internet just randomly. Uh, she was involved with a project in Canada, in the so-called country of Canada, <laughs> uh, called It's Already Happening, which is very similar to Triloquy, what what the, you know, what dialogue can do, what musical performance can do, all toward inspiring thoughts of decolonization. So, mm. you know, we just started uh, dialoguing and sort of having our cross-continental or cross-country Zooms, you know, remember the days of long-distance calling, much less an international call, you know? Oh, man. So now you could just get on Zoom. You got a you know? timer. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we, we, just, we have a general conversation um, that, I th- that I saved for the season finale because I think it really sums up the spirit of this podcast, what it really means to work toward decolonization. At what point is it time to put down the plow? You know, if you know, really deciding what can be changed or putting our healing and our mental health into consideration when we talk about our activist work. I think it's a, a really brilliant conversation. I'm going to put all of Bethany's collaborators in the description of this uh, opus. She wanted to make sure that everyone was credited, so everyone will be there. But among uh, the collaborators is a uh, violinist, Laura St. John, who hasn't been on Triloquy, but I hope to get there one day. I think she has a really compelling story to tell and is a really great musician, as you'll hear in this performance, her own arrangement of a tune called Statue of Liberty. It's music by Laurie Anderson. And I think it just offers this really misty sort of gray aesthetic that helps me think about, you know, going up the up the Hudson or wherever the Statue of Liberty is, you know, up, <laughs> from the United States <laughs> up to Kansas City. We don't know geography. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, um, where, where Bethany and I, b- before we uh, hear that music, where Bethany and I uh, start, I basically ask her about you know, what this conversation looks like in Canada. What is DEI in Canada? Mm. And she couldn't even get past the fact that I was using the word Canada and like honoring it as nothing more than a, a colonial enterprise built to kill indigenous and you know which is very yeah, real right, right you know let, let's go there you yeah. know but if we're really going to talk about decolonization let's talk about so-called Canada anyway that's where we start so um here's a um Laura St. John's uh, rendition of her arrangement of Laurie Anderson's Statue of Liberty to get us there. Hope y'all enjoy. Voices or centering perspectives in, in racial equity in Canada. Like I, I start by asking, like, what is Canada mm. in that context, and, and what does Canada mean to you in that context? That's really an interesting question because when I think about, for example, the phrase we use, Native American, I tend to critique that word 
America, because what is America, you know, from from that context, other than what has been superimposed on a people who were who were already here. So I guess when I think about Canada, I think about the uh, the municipality, you know, the the state of Canada as as we sort of see it here. But I guess the 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 dark point for me is not really understanding what racial equity looks like from the Canadian perspective, considering the fact that we don't learn about of uh, the Canadian involvement in the transatlantic slave trade and 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 those sorts of things. So it's kind of hard for me sometimes to understand what the context for racial equity is in Canada, much less racial equity work. Yeah, context. I pick up on the word context there. So when I was reflecting on how to answer this question, to me, I, I want to put this question in the context of what I consider Canada, which is a brand. So Canada is a brand. It's a brainchild of like rich British white dudes from centuries ago who wanted to produce money or capital gains from resources, human resources, natural resources. So that's Canada. So when we're talking racial equity in Canada, um, it's the brand of Canada that started with the quote unquote fathers of confederation and, and all that jazz. So um, what does, what does racial equity mean within that context? I don't know because all of Canada was built upon um, genocide, basically genocide or racism or exclusion or extraction. So to me, it's like asking a little bit, like, where does Canada come from? My interpretation of that as like a white middle-class lady. And from what I learned in my life experience is that, you know, we're told the story that Canada is created uh, like a cultural mosaic. We value all different kinds of people, especially like immigrants and refugees who came to Canada um, and the historical native population or indigenous population. Um, but the, And then of course you've got like your French and your British colonizers um, from back in the day. But really racial equity in Canada, I don't know. Um, it went from that sort of ex exploitative history somewhere along the line to we are a rich and diverse culture and that's who we are um you know it's a very cliche Canadian thing of just like we accept everyone and love everyone and that's not true because when you actually begin to take apart and learn and unlearn about the actual true history of Canada um it's it's unreal it's unreal I'm still on that journey every day learning new things about the history of Canada that was I feel hidden from a lot of people in our education and a lot of uh uh is extracted from the brand I would say so um I just had a note here too like I wanted to share when I was reflecting on this um just only because I've been looking into my family history recently and I have ancestry that were UELs or United Empire Loyalists hmm. who um came up from the states after the American Revolution into what we now call Nova Scotia um but basically they were just I'm not I'm still learning this uh given land and resources that obviously were completely overtaken from indigenous peoples there. Um, and also in the same niche of the country and around the same time, there was a huge uh, black population that moved into Nova Scotia, so-called Nova Scotia as well. And there's this thing called Africville, which I'm still learning about. Um, but, you know, that's before 1749. Uh, so that's, that's very, very long ago. If we want to talk about Canada's history, that's, sure. That's there. So are we centralizing or is, is racial equity about centering the indigenous history right now? I think yes, only from like a branding perspective, which is truth and reconciliation and um, 
Indigenous sovereignty seem to be taking up a lot of place in mainstream media right now, think, which I, yeah, I, I think is really provocative the way that you uh, describe Canada as a brand. I definitely understand what you mean. You know, I, I think about the idea of American capitalism inherently being anti-Black capitalism based on, you know, the, the origins of, of all things. Those are thought paths that I can definitely explore, but ones that maybe other people haven't even engaged. What, what's been your approach to engaging that concept with people in your work so far? Canada as a brand, not just some country. That's a really good question. Um, so, something that's informed me and helped me a lot is understanding treaties in Canada. So I try to, like, for example, a book recommendation would be talking back to the Indian Act edited by Marianne Ellen Kelm and Keith D. Smith. I was, I'm reading that right now. And so th to, to sort of start bending people I'm working with or talking about country and, or, sorry, bending people's concepts of Canada as a country versus Canada as a brand, hmm. um, it, it's just a bunch of decisions that were made in contracts that were, again, like defined by people who wanted to colonize. That's it. And since that has happened, the brand of Canada, it's, it's a government and a government to me is still very equitable to a corporation. Um, it has its own goals. It has its own mission, um, all of which is rooted in like exploitation, a lot of it, I think. So to, I, sorry, to get back to your question, which is how to sort of you know, get around this is I just like, I just say Canada is a brand and just to launch a little spark of imagination of like, well, think of another brand that you admire or that you like or that you support? What's the difference between that and, and a country? There, to me, there's not much difference. And so that sometimes is a bit of a leeway into a conversation. How did you develop this uh, way of thinking and, and way of viewing? Was there a, uh, an event in, in your life or in your work that sort of pivoted you uh, in this way? Was it a slow evolution? I wonder if you can speak to that. Uh, slow evolution for sure. Okay. Um, I definitely identify as growing up as like the classic Canadian cliche of like the cultural melting pot, cultural mosaic era of Canadianity. Um, the whole maple syrup shtick and hockey mm -hmm. and Tim Hortons and all that. And then as I later in life um, started to discover the the truth about reckon uh, pardon me the uh the truth about indigenous history in canada and learn about residential schools and learn about treaties and learn about all kinds of stuff that uh i had never even heard of it was just a journey of unlearning that and then at the same time um i sort of deeper into my career got into working with more corporations like very large scale national or international corporations and through the relationships that i developed and the work that I did working with corporate social responsibility departments and things like that, it's sort of just all started to mesh together in my brain of how the things I was learning to sort of decolonize my brain or my way of being, plus the, the sort of work I had to do in CSR alongside CSR things was like, man, there's a lot of similarities here. And I think if, if I start applying my approach to, you know, like, how I how I navigate working with corporations in the nonprofit sector. And, and then I combine that with how I'm thinking about like government. It just kind of meshed together. And, and I don't know, it's just grown stronger. And the more that I've looked at Canada through the lens of a brand, it just kind of, kind of fits. 
Can you say more to uh, CSR? Well, what is CSR? <laughs> uh, it, corporate social responsibility. I mean, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't. I think it's like, <laughs> go ahead. I said maybe they don't either. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. It's like, I, I really don't know what that is. I, <laughs> I, I like that you mentioned, um, you know, the sort of corporate sort of view and, and work next to the nonprofit sector. And there's this large idea, at least, you know, here in the United States, that nonprofits are inherently less violent, less colonial, less, you know, all of all of those things. I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on on that and how that's impacted the the way that you engage corporations and the nonprofit sector. Yeah. Great question again. Um, so I'm pretty hard on a side of a fence right now where I'm viewing the nonprofit sector as just another branch of colonialism. Um, again, as I'm, I'm going through my unlearning and reading all kinds of amazing stuff, which I wish I had written down some recommendations of things to, re to read. Uh, but you know, the, look at the power structure of nonprofits, right? To me, it's still very triangular. Um, a lot of nonprofit boards are still all white or mostly white or and or led by a white male. Um, how power is distributed amongst nonprofit organizations is still very like old school. And there's like built-in white saviorism. This is, is something I've come to accept and like try to identify in my life as well, where there's just this like other population that needs your help. And you are the agent of change, usually with money. Um, and so that, that, I don't know, like, I'm not saying all nonprofits don't do good work or important work, but I think it's inherently at its core, um, a mechanism of white supremacy. And so I don't know if you can like ever get that out of the nonprofit sector. I, I have no idea. Um, but the longer I spent in the industry, the more affirmed that belief was. And now that I've stepped outside of it, uh, I've discovered a whole bunch of community of people who sort of agree or have different perspectives on that. And there's tons of writing and tons of research on this. And um, yeah, if that's something that interests you, I would also recommend to check out Boulet, uh, who has had a huge role in shaping my understanding of the nonprofit sector, uh, especially when it comes to fundraising. So check out Foulet. He's awesome. The nonprofit uh, sector's inherent colonialism is not separate from arts institutions, orchestras, opera houses. You know, I think we sometimes like to separate those things. But I've, you know, in my work over the past several years, really centered on arts institutions as an example of exactly what you're speaking to. I wonder if you could uh, talk about just your personal history in the arts. Were you a, a musician at, at some point? Did you have aspirations to sing on an opera stage? I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. I, th I think the world is... Lucky I'm not singing on opera stages, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, music was sort of just always there in my life as, as long as I can remember. I grew up um, sort of like playing in the record cupboards of, that my mom had at home. They were like close to the ground and had a cool, fun, like opening <laughs> wooden door that I think I played with. And then it's like, it's one of my first memories. It's just taking out all these cool records and looking at the designs and then learning how to use the record player. Um, I started piano in grade two and French horn in 
I don't know, maybe like grade six, uh, my family background, half of my family background is German. So, um, German brass bands playing in a Lutheran church. Like I grew up with most of my family doing that. So it was just always around me and always just part of my identity as long as I can remember. Um, and then, yeah, I just kind of really liked it. And I think I was like a little obsessed with it and I enjoyed very much making music. Um, and as I got older, I entered into a youth orchestra where I met other just incredible people. So the, the joy and the ability to express emotions that came from playing with other people was just like addictive. I, I loved it and then decided to pursue that um, like professionally or in higher education. And I don't know, I just, I, it's just part of me, I, I would say. My whole life is sort of based around it and it's what, it's what brings me joy the most, I think. I think the difficulty of some of these conversations is rooted in exactly what you just said. It's part of us. We think about our lives within the context of uh, the impact music had on us as youngsters, as college students, even some of us in the in the profession. What do you think should be done? Or maybe you could speak for yourself. What is to be done with the emotional reality of nostalgia and, and those sorts of things next to this thing is colonial and we need to unlearn. I think that's really what's difficult for people, that that dissonance specifically. Love that question. Love that question. And I, I think about that a lot too, of just like, why am I here doing what I'm doing? Why am I still doing what I'm doing? Why do I stick around in this industry that I kind of like have a huge roller coaster of emotions and connection with? I think I always come back to at the center of it for me is that it's like a nonverbal thing. It's, mm. it's a felt thing. I don't know how to describe it. It's a body experience and it's a bit like spiritual experience or something. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but at the core of people who make music, we just like get it. And people who love music just kind of get it. And I don't know how to describe that. So I, as I've evolved as a musician and a person and stuff like that, I just always try to come back to that feeling or like have my body remember that feeling of we're here because of music. Like this is the universal language, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, so if you try and center that feeling or that connectedness or that communication and use that to inform how we're doing music and to, while we're like becoming aware of the sort of like oppressive modalities that we practice classical music in, just try and keep it centered in the fact that like at the end of the day, it's about music. Uh, does that sort of answer the question? I, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And when, and when you say we're here because of music. You know, what I wrote down here was we're here because of colonial music. We're we're here oh. because of that sort of approach. It seems like even those good things, the the small positives we can take out of it, you know, are still rooted in colonialism and and whiteness. Even those of us who work to sort of dismantle some of those things, that work is the result of of colonialism. How do you engage that? conversation it's like no matter what it's it's inescapable almost it is it is and I've only recently like in the past like couple year or two come to like put that lens on myself and look backwards through my own musical history so yes like I, I just there's something there's a love of music right but I, I picked French horn I fell in love with classical music for some reason and as I look through that it's the institutions that were around me my place in society as a white middle class maybe kind of rich I don't, I don't know like uh, female with opportunity to pay for private lessons, to 
get, even know what like this Western European instrument of a French horn is, which was again, like I say, like influenced by my German family coming over from Europe. Um, and then, you know, I, going up through the RCM in Canada, the Royal Conservatory of Music and joining a youth orchestra, which was predominantly white and then going to higher education, which it, you know, to me, now I reflect on that, was just like, that's just what you do. Like, like you just go get an undergrad in something and that's such a freaking luxury and privilege that I had no concept I was even participating in. Got a master's degree, same thing. In, a, in uh, Ireland too. So like in an international master's degree, you know, the money and the time and the uh, energy that I was able to put into that because of this like, benefits that I've had through colonialism, right? So then the opportunities and the career comes, you know, you're still working in festivals or at conservatories or these, these organizations or these models of doing classical music that are so inherently colonial. Like it's, it's inescapable. It's it, like you said, like everything we almost touch is built in this system. So when it comes to sort of I feel like I'm rambling here a bit when it comes to um, uh, like balancing what I identify as like just this love of classical music. For me, I always go back to like Beethoven. Oh my God. And like Mozart, like, Oh, like it's just something there in that music. I don't know. It, it resonates with me, but then the practice of it, I don't know. I always grapple with this. It's like, I, I'm not sure what more I can say on that. It's just, it's this continual ebb and flow of like I love the music but look at how we're doing it and why we're doing it and uh, I don't know it's just a constant conversation I'm having with myself what's your perception on the way you're received in uh in your work you know the people or institutions that you collaborate with are you sort of a radical do you do you have a sense that people sort of can follow you and 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 your thought processes in these conversations um, yeah, I think, okay, so through through the project that we'll get to eventually, like, um, that I did, I discovered a huge community of people out there already on the same wavelength, doing the same thing, a little bit differently, different perspectives. Like, that's how I learned about you and all the amazing work you're doing. And it's just like, oh, man, there's there's a whole community out there that I had no clue. Or, like, I had little thoughts about or never had time to do that. So, like, there's a there's a great amazing flux of people out there who have amazing ideas like on the same wavelength that kind of thing so I'm really excited that that's out there um at the same time there's also uh, I don't know traditionalists is the word but people who are just sort of like dumbfounded I would guess are just like how can you say that or like they just don't get it and through the conversations that I had for that project it was like pretty clear sometimes right away of just like what a radical concept might be to someone is also just like, I don't know, bread and butter to someone else. Sure. So it totally depends on, on the persons. And I find there's just, there's both out there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that project. It's already happening. Tell the folks what that was, um, what uh, it was like to in, engage that pro project and what you see as the lasting impacts of it. Okay. Um, so I just like, thank you again, even for giving me this space and platform to like talk about this. It's so incredible and mind blowing to me. Um, so it's already happening, um, sort of was an art project in general, I would describe it as. It was a concept of, I had just left the nonprofit world. I had 
done a lot of like grappling with what music means to me and what I'm going to do with it in my life. And it was sort of a response to like a bit of self-expression of just, I need to get stuff off my chest or I need to, I just need to do something. And I was untethered from any organization or any mission or any funder and found myself for the first time in my life with like 100% total creative freedom and also nothing to lose. <laughs> like I had no employment. I had nothing going on in my personal life. I was at a weird personal juncture. I'm like, all right, let's just follow this and see what happens. And so the project, um, basically I just wanted to do something about classical music that involved my friends, that people like that I liked working with that would kind of bring me some joy. Um, but then also examine some of the reasons why I felt compelled to uh, give myself distance from the whole industry and the whole sector and the music itself too. So it all started off with just like a kernel of an idea of like, okay, who do I know? I want a basis in relationships. I want a basis of people I know, like that I love and trust and can work with and go from there. Um, and I wanted to do a project that was contrary to a lot of my training as a learning lesson for myself. So like, if this is what I would normally do professionally, why would I make that decision? Can I try something different? Um, I want to break the boundaries of how things are normally done, how I would normally do it and just see what happens. So it was kind of like a big old experiment. And um, at the end of the day, what it turned into, thanks 110% due to hundreds of people who supported this and made it happen. Like, like I say, it was co-created by people. And I really mean that. Like I had no mission statement. I had no nothing. It was just whatever popped up as we went along, it shaped it. And whoever had ideas truly like shaped it. So it ended up being um, sort of like a sort of online unconference, if that's what you want to call it, of some amazing folks uh, who uh, spoke to topics on what they're passionate. Hang on. Let me just like, I have a little, <laughs> I'm nervous. So uh, I can't really describe this. So in, um, on the website, I had it described as uh, so what exactly is already happening? It says longstanding systemic barriers in the classical music industry are getting crushed every day. These barriers are created and perpetuated by patriarchal white cishet colonial mindsets and practices. For a long time, people in communities around the world have been calling these practices out, doing work to dismantle them, and also leading through example by doing things in new and better ways. Um, and just to, I'll stop there for a second. The name it's already happening came from like I, one of the challenges I had was like, I don't want to be another person perpetuating this model of like, oh, I'm going to go discover mm. a problem in the classical music industry. Oh, I found it. It's racism. Or, <laughs> oh, I found it. It's gender inequality. I found it. Me. Like, mm -hmm. now what am I going to do about it? it? It's like, I wanted, I got so sick of conferences and published papers just being like, look, we did all this research and discovered this problem based on data that is like super old and like, oh my gosh, like this stuff has been happening for ages already. It's just now surfaced its way up through colonial institutions into like research papers and conferences. And here's the solution of what to do and here's how to do it. So I just wanted to stay completely away from like any sort of prescriptive, here's what you need to do to make the industry better. The concept was like, it's, it's already happening. Like these people have, when I say these people, I mean, communities and peoples have already been doing the work for decades examining these problems, showing the problems, living the problems, fixing the problems, um, 
doing all the work. So it was really, I tried to just make a space for people I really respected and admired to come and talk about what they were doing already, like the themes that have already been happening, um, the work that's going on out there, just a space to connect with other like-minded folk who may or may not have like thought about these perspectives or heard of these perspectives. Um, the last thing I'll add to is that uh, when I was trying to shape a little bit of just like the topics or um, people that I wanted to talk to, I went inwards into myself and said, okay, Bethany, like through your career, if you want this to be relationship-based and with people you know and trust, like, okay, who is uh, an Indigenous person that you know mm. um, in the classical music world? We can just like call up and be like, hey, bud, like, want to come on, want to do something? Like, and then I was, and then I thought, okay, if I'm looking at the community of people with disabilities, who do I know? No one. Okay, is there um, a Black musician that I know that I can call up? No, I don't. Okay. Um, is there a trans or like someone in the LGBTQT community that I can personally like have and like, no, I don't. And so I'm like, oh my God, as I progress this, I'm like, you just have to, this is me talking to myself, but being like, why, what that's hmm. why, why, why do I not know anyone like that for my own accountability and for like structural accountability of the sector? It's like, why, why? And so, um, the project just kind of grew to, I put some shots out in the dark of just like, do you want to come on the show or whatever it is and talk about whatever you want, um, be paid whatever you want on time and in full 100%. Uh, and so, uh, I don't know, that's kind of what it's already happening turned into. And then it just became, yeah, like a speaker series for two months of live unscripted, um, conversations. Oh. I, re I really resonate with, you know, the idea of starting with friends or starting with people, you know, and expanding from there. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more. I mean, when, when I when I collaborate with certain arts institutions that really at the end of the day is the root of the issue. The leaders of these institutions don't know black people, don't know trans people, don't know people who are living with disabilities. How did you traverse? You know, you, you, you said you just would throw shots in the dark, but is there anything else you can offer regarding creating those genuine connections? Great question. Um, I think, I think my experiences in fundraising had a lot to do with how I perceived relationship and how that sort of tainted the concept of relationship for me um, in that like, for example, I worked at a software company, which is a CRM customer relationship management. <laughs> and relationships were turned into data points, which were interpreted into things that can just get you more money through more effective fundraising. And I lived that for like, I don't know, eight years. And, you know, fundraising is a lot about relationships and networking and knowing how to hit someone with a certain message at a certain time in a way that they need and act in certain ways and code switch. And like, oh, I just found part of the reason why I left all these industries at the end was I just got, I, I don't know, I would say like really the concept of relationship would just taste like stale bread to me. And I got really grossed out by that. And I think it kind of ate my soul a little bit. So in, in a reaction to that was to sort of come back to like, again, friendships and, and love and just like, who do I actually want to work with now? And it's people who I respect and admire because I know them personally and I don't want anything out of this. Like, I don't want to have a mission or an end goal or like 
KPIs that I have to produce from doing this project with these people. I, I just want it to be. Um, and so the most amazing thing happened through that journey because I think people sense that. I think people pick up on that right away. And I think we all kind of crave that uh, to just, I don't know, decloak from all this crap that we have to navigate all the time and just get back to like human to human connection. And like, again, like we love music, we love music. So like, let's connect on that. Let's talk about it. And like, just be people again, just have a relationship. And it also held me, uh, the last thing I'll add to that is like accountability. Like the, the metrics of accountability in this project completely changed because I wasn't beholden to a funder. I wasn't beholden to a boss, colleagues, whatever. I was beholden to the people huh, that I was engaged with and accountable to their communities. And so that for me was like exciting and terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. Because when you all of a sudden have like a person to person accountability, like for example, like I, I really honestly care <laughs> what you are thinking and reacting and what your listeners are going to react to this. Cause like, I care, like I just care. And I, I get the vibe that you care about this conversation and you care about me too. And that's like, when, how often do we get to do that really without any other sort of agenda coming into it? And beautiful stuff happens when we can just like shed all this other crap around it and, and just be people together and like nerd out and talk about stuff we like and learn new things, you know? I, I really appreciate those words. You know, what, what really fuels me in addition to like the personal relationships that I get to develop in my work is just the vision. I, I just, you know, I, I often think about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speech from the mountaintop. You know, I feel like I see a reality that I'm trying to convince other people can exist if we just really fight for it, if, if we really try to to make it happen, uh, a reality where we are um, enjoying music in a way that does not center any culture, but centers everyone that is really equitable in, in that way. And I think there's a version of that that can happen in every sector across society. I wonder what you see yourself working toward. Do you, do you have a do you have a vision? Do you, do you have a, a reality that you want people to try to imagine for themselves? Man, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about how to answer that this morning. And one thing I want to bring into this is just like a bit of neurodiversity acceptance sure. here. And that I have, I identify as having complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And part of that is like not being able to envision a future wow, <laughs> or yeah. a very short-sightedness when it comes to future. Um, so I just wanted to like put that in there as a bit of my perspective is like, I have, I struggle a lot to have a positive and safe outlook um, for future just because of trauma. So for my, for when I answer that, um, I, I, it's difficult for me because I, I always struggle with trying to be an optimist, I would say, but I do think that said, like, there are, we're all, there's fantastic people out there. And if you align yourself with like these things of trust, vulnerability, respect, and I don't mean those in like cheesy corporate ways. I mean, those in like a very human way. Yes, there is an amazing future waiting. I think a lot of that's going to involve a lot of white people in power, releasing their power, stepping down, like, let's do it already. Like just let people who have a vision, like kind of what we're talking about, um, go for it. 
or not, don't even let it like, let's, let's just keep on having these conversations and keep on coming together and, and see what happens. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I don't want to be like a pessimist, but I think there is a lot of an amazing, amazing work and people out there that we don't even know about yet. You're really striking a chord with me when you talk about that trauma, because there are so many aspects of my life that I have had to intentionally change based on trauma, you know, based on what I learned was trauma. For example, if, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk and I cross the street as to not pass a certain someone who looks a, a certain way, you know, once upon a time, I had to understand first and foremost, that is a trauma response. And that trauma response likely is not due to that person. I don't know that person. It's due to a system that has created that, that trauma for me. On the other hand, I really try to release myself of the trauma of white supremacy and not, you know, uh, base my viewpoints and 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 uh, my emotions, you know, in anything on that on on this concept of of white supremacy. I wonder how you engage that. Is is there rest? Is there a time in your life where when you're able to just live and and exist outside of the traumas that, in one way or another, we have all been subjected to? Mm. Mm. I love what you just said. I'm just letting that sink in. <laughs> Dang. Because, um, because what I'll quickly add is that if, from my perspective, one of the tools of white supremacy is wearing us out. You know, if we're if we're tired and we're burnt out, you know, they won't have that resistance anymore. You know, that's yeah. why I do really believe in that rest, not only the physical rest, but the emotional rest, just separating uh, oneself from that trauma. I think I think I'll answer this in in a weird way. I don't know. Um, so I look at this from the perspective of a sexual assault survivor. Hmm. So that's the first point. The second point, and I'll come back to that. This, the second point is where do I? How can I? Like a space where I can go to, like sort of just live, be free of that trauma. Like man, I have had to come to terms with understanding what that even means, and under and like the grief of like not having lived like that most of my life and just being you know so for me music making it is that thing like I can plug in and I can emote I can connect with other people I can connect with myself through music so like I think that's kind of why I I'm a little bit addicted to music I guess it's just it, it offers that to me but the, the other thing I'll come back to is the sexual assault component so through the it's already happening project um it was a really surprising transformative journey of me coming to terms with sexual assault that happened to me in and around the classical music industry and like huge shout out kudos Laura St. John for coming on and like I don't even know why she <laughs> I still can't believe I got to talk with her about all that little old me um so it's I'm not really sure where I'm going with this but like a lot of the sexual assault and and gender based violence that I have experienced has, has come directly through my experiences in the classical music industry, be it through leadership that was just unbelievably sexist through musicians who assaulted me through um, being denied opportunities because I was a woman, am a woman still being denied those things, gender pay gap, all of that stuff. So there's like a lot of trauma that was inflicted on me just by wanting to participate in this sector and in this industry, because I happen to have like, boobs, you know, like, let's be real. Um, then I happen to have a lot of sexual assault. Like, it's just, so 
trauma for me is is deeply connected to music and it has always confused me like yo I just want to be here and like play my French horn why does this have to be here but it is and it's just a fact of life um for many of us uh, and that's just one type of trauma so uh I don't know I think I'm going to cut it off there because I'm kind of losing my train of thought but no I, I love I love that when you when you make that comparison I think about some of my own racial traumas I think about the choices that many of us have to make uh just based on the the white supremacist mm-hmm. cultures that surround us for example I wear locks I have been dismissed from many job interviews because I refuse to cut my hair. That is a choice that I make. There are other people who choose to go along with with the systems for the sake of, you know, not only just their own capitalistic uh, aspirations, but, you know, taking care of family, taking care of children, you know, those sorts of things. I wonder Mm -hmm. what your thoughts are on maintaining positive conversations, positive motions with marginalized individuals who unfortunately because of our systems have to make some of those choices we don't want to isolate them and say oh you aren't really doing the work you know but at the same time there must be something to be said or encouraged you know to the point of helping them understand the ways in which they can say no or how how they can help dismantle these systems at the very least critique them I, I, man, that's, that's great. Um, I think having a broader understanding of trauma mm. or, or bringing more trauma, I, it's so cliche of a term, but like trauma informed practices, thinking of how to bring that into the little classical music world. Um, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? I think if we start opening up those concepts in a more broad way, I think what I'm trying to say here is actually is like if the oppressors would start to understand trauma a little bit more, that would be helpful, like to understand the impact that it has on us. Cause I don't, I, I don't want to put this burden of work on, on people experiencing trauma. And this just comes from a totally personal perspective of just like, I'm burnt out mm. of dealing with sexual assault. And, um, to the point where like, I don't even want to work with men anymore. And like, that's not okay. hundred percent. Not all men are like that, but I'm in the place of just like, I can't. And so when I think of change coming, I don't want it to be from traumatized people. There's, there's a burden that like, come on, people at the top, men at the top, white people at the top, come on, go, go and do more and do better and, and learn please. Cause I, I don't know. Trauma messes you up sometimes and, and it is tiring and it's exhausting and it's hard. And it's, it's not something you get to put aside. You have to live with it every single day. So for those of you who aren't traumatized from working in this industry, like, why, why is that? Think about that. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Do you not feel trauma? Then why? Cause I have, I, there's very few people that I've met that don't. So why do you have that? And go explore that. I don't know. Uh, your, your, your vulnerability is, is really moving me because, you know, to speak for myself, there was a long period of time, you know, and certainly highlighted by the tragedies of 2020, where I wasn't particularly interested in talking to a white person. Like that just was not 
in in what what I could do. You know, I found a a spiritual practice. I found um, Buddhism, and that's helped me really transform oh. my, my my visions of things. But I, I I really do appreciate your 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 words there and your your vulnerability. It's you know it's hard to not hear you say. Um, you know, those who are not traumatized need to understand it without thinking, you know, a little bit of my mind thinking, well, that means we need to traumatize them. So, but, but, you know, yeah. trauma breeds trauma, you know, hate breeds hate. What are your thoughts on, again, pivoting that trajectory? We can, we can traumatize white men and now they understand, but do you see a way for that to happen uh, where, where we aren't becoming the oppressor? <laughs> that's, that's an amazing concept in question. And again, for vulnerability, oh man, this isn't great to say, but whatever, I'll say it. Sometimes I'm just like, you know, oh, please, I hope this doesn't kind of like some crazy sound clip or something, but it's like, yo, if like men were raped as much of I, as I have been, then I'm willing to talk to you. You're speaking. Then you can come have a conversation with me. Hmm. And I'm every time I go down that road of that, I'm like, you're, you know, you're a music instructor who doesn't get felt up all the time. I don't want to talk to you until you're like, you've been felt up by these people or like, you know, it's just that that's intergenerational cyclical perpetuation of that kind of thought. And that's what like, I want to break is like, you got to be aware of when you're thinking like that, do some work on that. And like, no, 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 that's not how that's, that's never how this is ever going to stop. It's perpetuating. So the word perpetuating, like be super mindful of any action that we might take or thought pattern that we are doing to perpetuate because it's baked into the system to perpetuate. Mm. So I like, I know I've grown up. I've, I, I just do. I perpetuate white supremacy. I do. I just do it. Um, we all, per, we all participate in perpetuating these things and that we have to stop that. We have to stop. Um, wait, I sort of lost my train of thought. I was going to say, um, yeah, about going down that road of like, I won't talk. I am so sick of talking to men unless you've been, you know, assaulted. I have no interest. It's like, that's so gross. That is so gross. And the most transformative and like gracious ability to develop as a human being and get work past my trauma has been gifted to me through humility and love and curiosity and patience of friends that I have that I love from different cultures, family members, or people I consider family, consider me family. Um, when we, when we practice those kinds of values, that's, that's actual healing. Like, I'm, I don't know what healing means, but like, we have a lot of healing to do. Healing's a multi-faceted journey. Um, and so, yeah, inflict trauma. Heck yeah. So who doesn't feel like doing that sometimes? Oh my gosh. I think it's human to admit that, but like really, even just having that conversation is healing of just like admitting it. And we, we all, it's so cheesy, but like we all got to love each other and just keep our eye on the horizon of we can do things differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's already happening, happened. Um, but are there any uh, projects coming up or if, you know, for people who are interested in uh, exploring, you know, some of these conversations even more, uh, do you have any suggestions, any uh, resources, uh, anywhere where you like to send people? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, give me a second here. <laughs> I want to invite um, folks engaging here. I just picked like one thing because I could have a giant list. 
But um, something that had a huge impact on me was, I am so sorry, please. Oh, no. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. Edit this weird little waiting thing out. Um, To check out an open letter from Indigenous classical musicians. Um, It's available on the Indigenous Performing Arts Alliance website. And have a read through that. Take a look at the the collective of people who wrote that letter, their careers, what they're up to, and and start there. That's what I would like to do. And this comes from like my my friend Andrew Balfour, who is part of the It's Already Happening project. Um, that's that's something I would just want to put out there for people to engage with. Great, great. Well, the the final thing I wanted to ask you, you know, this is something that. Uh, I am not quite sure I have an, an answer about I'm, I'm you know talking with a lot of people to just get ideas when we talk about dismantling status quo surrounding classical music, uh, programming more works by women, programming more works by black composers, com- composers of color. There is certainly a view where that is positive, but there's a part of me that thinks that that is uh, a very uh, how can I say, just pernicious and insidious way of perpetuating what's going on through uh, through through marginalized experiences, you know, empowering certain marginalized individuals within a problematic system perpetuates that system. Uh, what's your what's your response to that idea? Is the programming of William Grant still, for example, in actuality, a perpetuation of the very system that marginalized him in the first place? Oh, this is such a great question and perspective. Like I think about this all the time too, all the time. So it's just, and let me just so thrilled one, one quick thing. I, I yep. have to credit the, the, uh, the uh, Wachowski siblings who created the matrix for really introducing this concept to me. You know, I've, I've seen that those films thousands of times. Yeah. And I think about the, the character, the Oracle who, you know, on the surface is, you know, this, you know, very friendly, older black woman who is really trying to help everyone out. But that is how the system is perpetuated through through that face, through through that approach. You betcha. OK. Oh, <laughs> man, I love this question. I feel like I could talk for like an hour on this one, too. Um, and thank you for inviting my my perspective on this to the space. So. I, I think I'd, I've become for lack of better language, more radicalized. Uh, and I think just abolish it, abolish it, whatever you think that means, whatever you think needs to be abolished, abolished it. Um, I'm sort of worn out and tired of, of that line of thought, which is like, well, what can we do to, to tweak the system? And that's where I come back to these conferences of like, oh, well, we discovered the problem of racism. And like, now we've discovered like, the research that supports how you can change your organization. That kind of change takes forever because the system has been designed so that change like that, first of all, what have ne- should have never been even been thought of to change the system like that. But now that that kind of mindset is, is creeping in, um, it's, it's just not designed to do that. It's not designed to evolve, I think, to where we want to take it. So I'm, why do things have to go on and, and perpetuate for, no, why do things have to go on for so long? Um, anyways, like things have a shelf life. Things need to die for regrowth to happen. Like I, I don't know. 
I'm not, I, I don't know. That's the thing. Um, there's amazing, powerful work that can happen through this within context, but I just think I'm tired of having that conversation and I'm tired of going to whiteboards and white men and asking for some place at the table that they've told me that I need to have. Like, oh, I'm so over that. I, I did. I earned that place at the table and I was like extremely insulted and sexually assaulted uh, by earning that place at the table. So no thanks. I don't want to be at that table. I don't want to be in that room. I don't want to be in that building. What's next? And I don't want it anything to do with that. Um, so how does that evolve? I don't know. But I'm I'm definitely more so on the side of like, it's over. Things need to, to move on. And for me, that it means something brand new. I, I don't want to play ball anymore. I don't know if that's too harsh or whatever, but I'm exhausted. That's a really beautiful performance by the Canadian Chamber Choir. It's a work by composer Andrew Balfour called Vision Chant. So it really nice. uh, dips into Very some good. of the indigenous spirit of things. You know, uh, Andrew uh, Balfour was another one of Bethany Reed's collaborators um, on uh, her project. Um, and I just thought that was just a, a really beautiful uh, performance that I wanted to highlight. One thing that I wanted to uh, throw at you before we got into the triloquy, at the end of our conversation, you know, Bethany is talking about earning this seat at the table, you know, really climbing this ladder and not only that path, but being there, being harmful, you know, uh, emotional health, mm -hmm. uh, spiritual health, all of those things. And, you know, how uh, money is what keeps so many people there. You know, a lot of people have the privilege or just have the need to remove themselves from those spaces because mm -hmm. they're, they're so harmful. Um, but uh, many, many people have to stick around. You know, I right. wonder with money just off the table something that doesn't matter we don't need money you have all the money you need whatever it is to what degree would uh you you still be interested in the work of just broadening representation in classical music you know is there a version of you that could just sit back comfortable and you know all of that is is all of that and and that's their business if i had all the money that i needed then that would be what I would do. Mm. Yeah. Along with, you yeah. know, plenty of other projects. And I probably want to travel. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. No, but uh, I mean, isn't that what we're talking about? That everybody, if everybody had what they needed in the bank account to, I'm not talking extravagance, I'm saying enough. Yeah. Then you get to pursue what you like, not what, you have to do to keep the lights on. Yeah. And th but but then I also think if we remove capitalism from this corporate ladder and all of the harm that it causes, do we need orchestras to exist in the way they exist? Can not all the people who just, you know, want to hear Carlos Simon go over here and play it and perform it and we're, you know, it's not about money. It it, it seems 
it seems hard to see past some of these the the big what I see is the big two pillars, just mm-hmm. the institutional systemic racism and capitalism. You know, when you put those two things together, sometimes it can be hard to to keep that vision. But when I meet other people in other places who are you know fighting and fighting as hard as they can, it mm-hmm. it kind of you know it, it doesn't remove the barrier of my vision, but it does make me keep punching because I know I'm not the only one punching. You know, sure. Mm. It's, it's, I mean, it's nice to talk about, I mean, because it's, it's so, it seems like it's so far away. Mm -hmm. What does it take? Hmm. Because, you know, it takes a, it takes a collective change of heart. Right. But we talked, we talked a lot about how it would be good, Mm -hmm. what would be ideal, but with what we actually have in front of us now. What do we do? What's the next step? You know, at the uh, at one of the pre-concert talks, again, for a breath, someone from the audience asked Bamuti basically that question, where where do we go from here? You know, what what's what's next after this? Mm-hmm. And he basically told him, that's for you to figure out in your life because I'm doing what mine is. You know, my version of that, that's what I'm doing right now. So I think it takes uh, an internal look for each and every one of us. I, uh, you know, and, and, and this will, you know, get us into what we're talking about in the triloquy. There's just been so much personal, emotional, financial investment for me to not consider it one of the meanings of my being in this profession. Hmm. If I really want to go there among the meanings of my life, you know, hmm. NPR was by no means the first job I got fired from. And, hmm. and, and in all of them, there was some sort of justice aspect, some sort of personal value that I could not shake and that I could not, you know, uh, make a compromise about. So it just seems like, you know, we all have different purposes. We all have different missions. For me, justice is that. And I happen to not go to law school. I happen to learn how to play the bassoon. Mm. So here we are, you know, doing it, doing it this way. Um, I would just encourage everyone to think about that for themselves. What is it that you are most passionate about that is at the intersection of human good and human value? Do that, you know, aspire toward that. Consider that your mission. Right. Mm. Anyway, well, we're going to jump into this uh, final movement with one of my faves. First of all, shout out to Valerie Coleman. We were sitting, you know, you ever been at a lunch table and someone starts, you know, just randomly humming or singing something and, and now the lunch table is singing it and we're in harmony and everything. That ha- Shout out to Valerie Coleman. That happened down at the Atlanta Earshot reading oh, with this tune, but I think it's a tune that's very appropriate for this week's Triloquy. So we're going to listen to this classic and I'm going to let you take it away. How do I say goodbye? Bye to yesterday. 
Oh, but before before we get into it, real quick, tell your jean shorts and church jacket <laughs> I story. Just, I was just about to say <laughs> that that was one of my favorite CDs when that came out. Ooh, you know, cla- and, classic period. And yeah, and Damn, I was I what was an incredible song working as a mobile DJ, so I was playing that every weekend a couple times, and and I thought it was a great band, and um, I was like, we talk about the confluence of music and dance, and there's um, all the fashion Mm -hmm. and all this set dressing and everything right so i go to class to give my final presentation and i go in my shorts with a dress shirt and tie and and then my suit coat and my my instructor thought that was kind of (laughs) strange and i said well you you haven't been what you haven't been listening to boys to men and your your teacher said i hate to say it i hope i don't sound ridiculous i don't know no idea (laughs) i had no idea what that was Oh, is that from music television? Oh, okay. Right. Anyway, shout out to Boys to Men. But Scott, we made a vow to each other. 200. We will make it to 200 and then we'll see. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to be stepping down from the Triloquy mic. And my thought process behind it, there's a lot of things. You know, I want everybody to know, number one, that this is a huge commitment. There's a lot of work that goes, and it sounds like we're having a lot of fun, but there's work that goes into it. Garrett more so than me. And also I believe that, and I want you know, I'm gonna rope you in here now. Okay. Because one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I went to the PRPD conference back in August. I talked to a lot of people, went to a lot of panels and learned a lot of different things. And I think that between the stance that I have always had, this sort of, you know, things can be fixed idea, and you were the firebrand, you were the burn it down guy, Mm -hmm. and now you're into your statesman era, we need a new firebrand. I think you're going to, somebody told me once that you can't have one thing for a little bit of time and another thing for a lot of time. That's not how things work. Do you Mm -hmm. remember who told me that? No. That was you. Hmm. When Radar died, you were saying, you know, that that everything is transient, right? Yeah. And from the first episode, I said, one of these, I I thought it was you going to ditch me. (laughs) I said, one of these days, you're going to maybe want another person of color, perhaps a woman, or maybe somebody trans, you know, somebody that can speak to the issues in a firebrand way to move the show forward. Mm -hmm. Because I think that um, what we do has hit uh, a lot of years to have some change. But it needs to expand past that. The triloquy idea, the triloquy aesthetic has to expand past that. Yeah. So I did consider putting triloquy to bed and just letting that be the body of work that mm. we created. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in these past few months, there have been so many people, and I'm talking about artist managers and, you know, that that sort of thing, who are just really working to you know, get folks on Triloquy. And I feel, you know, so flattered by that. And and in that flattery, I feel a responsibility. I feel like there are so many more stories to tell, so many more perspectives that need to be highlighted. So I am bringing the the Triloquy podcast into a a fifth season. It's going to be 
far more um, interview based. It's going to be far more focused on not only the guests, but uh, what the guests are, are bringing to the table, because people really believe in this change that we have envisioned. And that's, you know, it, it really fuels me to a large degree. I mean, Scott, you talked about it being a lot of work. My job at ACO is enough to drive, <laughs> uh, <laughs> make a grown man ready to blow, as Lady Gaga once said. But, you know, that on top of just everything that goes on with Triloquy, it's a lot, but it's an a lot that I feel like, as I was speaking to a few minutes ago, is just a part of my mission, a part of, of my life story. There are so many people who will come and go and, and no one will ever know their name. I think thanks to Triloquy, you know, and the various things that we have both done, if we are a subtext of a subtext of a subtext somewhere a in a, a book. Footnote. Yeah, we are in the book, period. Mm. And I'm just so proud of that. And, you know, in that pride, I have to I have to keep going. So there will be many more conversations, many uh, more stories. It's probably going to be a, a slightly shorter uh, podcast, but I just got to say, I mean, it's really been the... Of all the things that I've done in my life, just the things that I've been involved with and just, you know, gotten to be a part of mm -hmm. building something from scratch and, you know, having that experience with you, it really means a lot. It's, it's really been an honor. Man, now you're going to get to me. Garrett, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but... The, the things that I take away from this podcast, I would never, I, I would never have had this experience or the opportunities to grow the way that I have if it wasn't for this. The, and you might remember that I thought I was just going to produce you. And then in one of the episodes, you, you just, produce me. No, 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 no. <laughs> I would be, you know, that I'd be the guy putting it all together. Right. And then all of a sudden now you're dragging me into the Nirmala interview mm -hmm. and I'm going, okay, well, here, here we're doing it. The realizations that I have had and the way that I am able to use that in my immediate circle where the work really needs to be done, that means more to me than I think I've ever verbalized. But one of the things that I would say to all of the listeners, if you are, if you, this is quite a platform that the two of us have built over the years. And if you are a white person and you're serious about trying to help and you have a platform that you can give up, do that. Because I think it's outstanding and it's an outstanding idea that this is going to be more guest focused for you. Because last week when Dell and I went out to eat, I told him every week when I listen, yes, I want to hear if I said some dumbass thing and I'm going to, and I got to be ready for what I need to duck for, right? I listen to the interviews because that's where the real rubber in the road meet. That's where the people out in it, experiencing it, are telling their stories. I don't think that they're going to miss uh, a middle-aged white man's take on an article <laughs> after maybe three or four weeks. I, I, I know that Triloquy will progress. And just like I'm going to get another dog one of these days, you will get another po podcast host. Hmm. You will get another host when you're ready. I love, right. Garrett, I love you. I love you like a brother. I've said that ever, uh, ever since we went through that hell in 
September of, what was it? 2020. Hmm. Yeah. 2020 was the shits, man. Just. I don't know. That the, year was, that year was great for me. I couldn't have bought better press. Oh my God. <laughs> well, for me, it absolutely sucked. Yeah. That yeah. summer. I get that. I get that. I know a lot of people lost a lot, but. I gained a lot, and mm. and we persevered through a lot because <laughs> they were coming for you. They were mad. Yeah, they were mad at Scott. Yep. But you know what? You're still here, and there are so few people. You know, there are so few other white people who would really sit there and take those licks, but take those licks in a way that is useful, not just responding and and being crazy on social media, but really learning and and growing as a person. And I, please, I have taken plenty of licks you do remember that lewis farrakhan was a, a topic on this show once yeah, upon a time. <laughs> so i've taken yep. mine too and you know that that's just really what's at the you know let, let's step away from triloquy even as, as we wrap up here i think just again what we were talking about at the uh, beginning of this opus the art of dialogue you know mm -hmm. and how podcasting has just created an industry around dialogue, you know, again, shout out to Katie and Delaney, you know, for, for what they've created and yeah. the overlap that we've had with them. Shout out to all of the huge podcasts, you know, that have inspired me over the years. Shout out to the Need to Know podcast that I was on right. before Triloquy was even born. I was just dipping my toe into what this whole world is. And here we are, people old people, you know, and I say that word with respect, old people walking up to me in public talking about mm. <laughs> what they've heard on the Triloquy podcast, folks that I would never imagine, you know, would Same. give these conversations uh, a, a second thought. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the the only, if, the, if I'm more grateful to anyone than you, Scott, is all of the listeners. Thank you for all of your support, your listenership, your ideas, all of the folks that reach out, wanted to be on the Triloquy podcast, all of the folks who are in my DMs every week mad about something that I didn't say because I'm just problematic in general, I guess, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and everyone in between. You're vital. You're vital to this. And it's, it's been an incredible, incredible ride. I'm gonna, uh, I'm probably gonna do a couple of replays in these next couple weeks, and then uh, I'm gonna jump back uh, uh, that first Wednesday of June with uh, a brand new opus, a brand new conversation, and a and a brand new feel to this thing. And I'm, I'm going to be listening. Are you, uh, are you ever going to come back as a guest? Maybe when you uh, retire from NPR or something, that's when you'll give it up. Oh, that's when we'll have the triloquy. Oh, so, okay. Uh, evidently, there's a lottery winnings in my future. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, everyone. 200 opuses. This is mm. incredible. See y'all when I see y'all. Bye.